The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. We'll turn to 1 Corinthians 8. If you don't have one, there's a Bible under a chair close by you. We're on page 956 in the chair Bible. And while you're drawing attention to the back of a chair is a Connect card. If you're new to Parkwood today, we'd love for you to take that Connect card and fill out the information. We're going to take our regular offering at the end of the service. And we only want you as a guest to participate by placing that card in the offering plate and letting us know that you are here worshiping with us today. We've been studying through 1 Corinthians. Uh, today we come to chapter 8. Next Sunday we will take a break and uh, look at one of the passages uh, in the Gospels as it relates to the incarnation of Christ. But this Sunday we continue in 1 Corinthians uh, looking at the entirety of this chapter. So I invite you to stand as I read the word of the Lord. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. Now you see the quotations? Paul is interacting with a letter that they have written to him. So every time you see quotations, he's quoting what they've written to him. That all of us possess knowledge. This, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, to the, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and that, quote, there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Lord, we need help now. People came in here, Lord, you know them better than they know themselves. They came in here with so many different things in their minds. And for most of us, it was the last thing we were thinking about. Frankly, most of us have never thought about it at all. Yet there's a principle here that we must all consider. So help us to see it today. Help us to see it clearly and not just to see it, but to practice it. So lead us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you could say, what in the world does this text have to do with 2019 in Gastonian? Or for those of you who came for a Christmas sermon, you could say, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Here's my answer. 
most of you will be faced with having to apply this passage during the Christmas season as you get together with friends, family, and coworkers. I'll just let you think about it. You see, what we're dealing with today are decisions, choices. Where do I go? What can I do? What can I participate in? What should I not participate in? And here's how most of us come to those conclusions, because we live in a culture that comes to these conclusions this way. I have individual rights, and I have individual choices. And because of this fierce individualism, here's what Christians are doing. They're just asking one question. Is it okay for me to participate? Is it okay for me to do this? Or we go even further and embrace this kind of mentality. What I do is my business. And my business is my business, and your business is your business, and you mind your business, and I'll mind mine. Now, the Bible. The Bible. It just kind of rambles around in our world, doesn't it? The Christian looks to the Word of God and sees that the Bible clarifies and confronts individualistic thinking. Chapter 8 relates to how we interact with each other as it relates to our choices in the body of Christ. Chapter 9 is going to relate to how you interact with your choices as it relates to lost people, to those who are not Christians. But today, we're confining our thinking to how we relate to each other as the body of Christ. This is a quote. Many people have understood this chapter to teach that Christians should not do things that offend other believers. This is simply wrong. Paul's point was the Christians, that Christians not cause other believers to sin, not that they refrain from doing things with which other Christians disagree. His fear was that the weak would sin by wrongly interpreting and copying the example of the strong, not that the weak would think less of the strong or take offense at their actions. So here's the main idea. Though we may suppose that we have a clear biblical understanding, our choices must not harm our brothers and sisters in Christ. The first overarching point. Our choices must give priority to love for God and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now concerning food offered to idols. She's going to take up a new subject. We know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. So let's unpack this seeming riddle. Paul here continues to interact with the, what the Corinthians have written to him. He is moving from the discussion, which is primarily centered around sexual immorality as it related to the married and the unmarried, to now take up the subject of idolatry, specifically food sacrificed to idols. And you say, well, that's not an issue here. It may not be a direct issue in the United States. You do need to know this. This is a direct issue in the East. That this is something confronting the church today. 
So just because it's not here doesn't mean it doesn't need to be dealt with directly. But there are indirect applications for us. Because idolatry happens in every culture, even cultures who claim to have no religion, which is where we are quickly moving. There is something or someone to which we orient our lives around, both individually and collectively. And here you need to understand this. The idols worshipped in Corinth were a means to an end. You went to this temple and you offered a sacrifice so that you'd be more wealthy. You went to this temple and you offered a sacrifice so that your crops or your business would succeed. You went to this temple because you were struggling getting pregnant so that you'd have a baby, a fertility God. Each of these gods had something specific to offer and you came and brought a sacrifice. Now, meat was a big deal. Most of us will have some form of meat today unless you're vegan. And we don't think twice about it because we can refrigerate it. But non-refrigerated world, particularly in the Middle East where it's hot and in Corinth, meat was a delicacy. So when this animal was offered... A portion of that animal was used for sacrifice. A portion of the animal was used to, to feed the priest or the person who oversaw the temple. The rest of it was used for celebrations in the temple and for selling in a market sold to the public. Here's the question. Should a Christian eat this food? There's a second question. Should a Christian eat at the celebrations that are offered at this temple? Paul here is addressing the knower. The person who's got this figured out. The person who possesses knowledge. And here's the knower's conclusion. I'm free to eat. I'm free to eat the food. Now before we get into the knowledge they have, he makes a warning. He says, knowledge in and of itself puffs up. So arrogant knowledge is incomplete knowledge. Verse 2. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So the essential knowledge is in verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. The essential knowledge is that God knows you. Now what does that mean? In Galatians chapter 4, it says, But you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. Those who are known by God are those who have been changed by the love of God and in turn now love Him. And as a result, they seek to build up their brothers and sisters in Christ in love. Now, I don't know if you've picked up already, but this language of knowledge puffs up and love builds up, it sounds familiar to another passage of the Scripture. It sounds like 1 Corinthians 13. So let's turn over there. I'm going to help you reading 1 Corinthians from this point forward. Paul is introducing this idea here of how love drives our decision making. And he's going to culminate that when he gets to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is not just inserted into 1 Corinthians. He builds to this point and then he continues to apply it afterward. Here's what he says. Oh, might help if I turn there. Excuse me. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. Now, we're going to come to the whole question of tongues. Several of you have already been up. Oh, what are you going to do with that part? 
Look, Paul says, issue's not tongues. The issue's love. How about prophecy? Issue's not prophecy. The issue's love. He even says in verse 3, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. The issue's not martyrdom. What's the issue? Love is patient and kind. Now right away we see what love is. Love is how I relate to you and you to me and us to each other. Love's not a feeling. Love is how human beings, particularly here, how Christians relate to each other. So here's how we relate. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. End of verse 5. It does not insist on its own way. Now, this is what he's dealing with in chapter 8. That love is not insisting on your own way. It's not irritated because you're not getting your way, and it's not resentful because you're not getting your way. But here's what love does. Let's go back to chapter 8 and look in verse 1, and let's look and see what love does. Love builds up. What's the opposite of build up? Tear down. So what he's going to deal with now is how you, how we can tear down another brother or sister. And he's going to look at the profound implications of what that means when we do that. Now before he does, he wants to make sure we all get our theology straight and what he's agreeing with and what he's disagreeing with. First, what he agrees with. Verse 4. Therefore, As to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol, quote, has no real existence and there is no God but one. So he says, all right, look, I agree with you. Idols aren't real. They're not real gods. Number two, there is no God but one. He's quoting from something there, the Shema. The Jewish person would repeat this multiple times a day, every day. There is no God but one. There is one God. Verse five. For although there may be, so, may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, it is indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. So the Christian faith, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. God is the source of all things. From Him are all things. And for whom we exist. He is the source and the purpose. We exist to glorify God. God, then he makes an incredible assertion. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. What's he saying? Jesus is God. That it is from Christ, he is Through him, all things exist. He he is the one who created and through whom we exist. That is, we who are in Christ. We are the ones who have been recreated. We are the ones who have been born again. We are the ones who are his people. So he's affirming what the Bible teaches, that there is one God and the deity of Christ, that Christ is God. So let, let let me just help you here. Let's have a little Christmas insertion. There are multiple things that irritate me about modern Christmas, all right? 
But I'm not going to rant about stuff that may or may not matter. But here's what I am going to talk about. I'm tired of platitudinal Christianity. You live in a pagan world. You need to learn to speak the gospel. Here's platitudinal Christianity at its best. Well, at Christmas, God gave us the greatest gift. Well, what is it? What is this gift? Here's what it is. That God became flesh and dwelt among us. Quit, quit making it all personal like God's some kind of cosmic Santa Claus who just came to give you a present. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. That he revealed to us everything that we need to know in Christ and he revealed to us everything that we need in Christ. Turn to Colossians, just a few pages to your right. Colossians chapter 1. He takes his Christology, the, the fact that Jesus is God, and he, he expands it here in Colossians. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. That means he's eternal. In him all things hold together. Apart from him, everything's going to come apart. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus Christ, listen to me, is fully God and fully man. Is fully God and fully man. And will be so forever. In heaven, you will see the fullness of the resurrected, incarnate Christ forever. Read Revelation if you don't believe me. He is the one who has reconciled us to himself. Whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he was the only, only acceptable sacrifice to be offered up to God to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, not just my behalf, on our behalf, that we might be saved. Now, he went a little bit further than what they were talking about, but here's what Paul's laying down. You knowers, those of you who got it figured out, you're right. There's one God. The triune God. God the Father, God the Son. He doesn't mention here, but he'll pick it up later. And God the Holy Spirit. Then he transitions. Our second point is, our choices must not harm our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the transition. Verse 7. What's the first word in verse 7? However... However, he can hear the amens at Corinth. Amen. However, not all possess this knowledge. Not everybody's got this straight. But some 
through former association with idols. That means before they became Christians, they were idol worshipers. Through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. So if they eat this food, they're eating as if they are participating in idol worship. Their conscience being weak is defiled. It does not mean that these people are bothered because they see you eat. Here's what it means. They see you eat. They say in their brain, that's a person who's been walking with Jesus longer than me. That's a mature Christian. They're eating the food offered to idol. It must be okay to be a part of idol worship. So I'm going to eat. Now he interjects a clarification one more time before he really drives this home. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. <laughs> Some things never change. You know, if I just stopped right here in the sermon, the, the internet would light up. Food doesn't matter. Food doesn't matter. Matter if you eat or don't eat. Paul says you're right. You're right. You're not worse off if you eat. You're not better if you eat. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Hey, knowers. Those of you who've got it figured out. Who, who, because you got it figured out, you need everybody else to know you got it figured out and everybody else needs to take the position you've taken. Paul says, you're not better. You're not. Because food's not the issue. So what's the issue then? Verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So let's paint the scenario that Paul's painting here. Let's make sure we get it. So out of knowledge, these idols aren't real. There's only one God. The knower, being fully assured that he's not worshiping idols, or she, comes to the conclusion that they have nothing to lose. So they eat. They are so comfortable with it that they go to the idol's cafe. That's what he's saying here. It literally says, reclining at the idol's temple. They are comfortably having a meal at the idol's temple. And along comes the new Christian, the former idolater. And they walk by and they look in. And there's this brother or sister reclining at the table eating. And here's what they do. Great. Money's tight. They're in there eating. I'm going in and eat too because we need more money. Yeah, we need Jesus, but we need more money. Or, lady's walking by. She sees another lady and says, great, she's trying to get pregnant too. I'm going in with her. Because if I eat, maybe I'll get pregnant. You see, something entirely different is going on with the two individuals. One, functioning out of knowledge, is not struggling. The other has just drawn, been drawn right back in to idol worship. Now you can say, okay, wait, wait, wait a minute. I don't really know that's what's going on. Paul's telling you what's going on. He's telling you potentially what's going on. And he's confronting this mentality. I'm happy. They're happy. What's the big deal? 
Here's the big deal. It's verse 11. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. When you make a knowledge choice without considering your brothers and sisters in Christ, you can potentially destroy a weak person. The word here for destroy, you cannot get around it. It means ultimate ruin. This is serious. He's taken stumbling in verse 9 and and making us understand it as Jesus wanted us to understand it. In Matthew 18, Jesus said this, Whoever causes one of the little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I just want to stop and step aside here from this preaching for a moment and ask you to ask some questions. What is going on in your mind right now? All right, here's some options. I don't know what in the world you're talking about. I've been thinking about something else and surfing the internet. Fine, keep surfing. Others of you are going, this is overstating. This is, you're you're one of them conservative preachers. You're just going way over the edge. Come on, we live in the 21st century. Calm down. You really think I could do that kind of harm to somebody? And some of you are still here. What's the big deal? It's just food. It's just food. Here's the big deal. Now I'm coming into the 21st century. Here's the big deal. Modern people would rather be thrown into the depths of sea and see their brothers and sisters destroyed than to lay down their individual rights for somebody else. There's the big deal. The scramble in the evangelical world is to find a verse that affirms what you want to do. Then, with your conscience eased, you try to get others to join you. So what do you need to do then? Here's the answer, brothers and sisters, and this is not a platitude. This is Paul's answer. We must look to Christ. This is the brother for whom Christ died. Christ yielded his life for the weak. But we as knowers can become so self-absorbed that we are unwilling to give up food for the sake of a weaker brother or sister. What we are called to do is to imitate Christ and to give of ourselves by sacrificing for the sake of others. We, We do this We imitate Christ because here's what we recognize, that we are in Christ. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now Paul's returning to a doctrine that is crucial to 1 Corinthians. In verse 30 of chapter 1, he says, because of him, you plural, not individually, you plural are in Christ. That means if I am a Christian, I am in Christ. If you're a Christian, you are in Christ. And here's the big principle. We are in Christ. 
It doesn't mean we're just related somehow. It doesn't mean that we share a common belief. It means that in reality, we are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if I sin against you, I sin against Christ. You say, I don't know if I believe that. Well, let's go back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The weight of this truth drops me in my tracks. And my prayer for you is it's going to stop you today and make you think differently about how you approach decisions as a follower of Christ as it relates to other people. Parents, individualism is killing parenting. Church members, individualism is killing churches. So here's my question. Are my choices reflecting love for God and my brothers and sisters in Christ or individualistic indifference resulting in harm? Here's the conclusion Paul comes to. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Over in Romans chapter 14, which is a very similar text, the difference is it's about dietary laws. Here we're talking about idol worship. The deeper nature of what's going on is in chapter 8. But similar principles, and he almost restates this in Romans 14, 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, I hesitate to go where I'm going to go just because of the weariness of my soul as a preacher in the discussion of this matter. I'm, I have for years now been worn out over this subject. But in every conversation I've been in in preparation for this sermon, this has come up. So listen carefully and don't get your dukes up too fast. Put them down. There is a newfound freedom in the evangelical South. And that is the drinking of alcohol. For those of you not from the South, you're probably wondering what in the world's wrong with these crazy people and why are they arguing about it? Because of the effect of Scripture and texts like 1 Corinthians 8, about 100 to 150 years ago, evangelicals in this part of the world came to a decision to say, in covenant together as churches, we're not going to drink for the sake of each other. It then became legalism. Anybody drinks going to hell. And then it began to be resisted. And then a new generation dawned and said, oh, the Bible says it's okay. Don't you see it? It's right here. I can drink. Here's what I want you to hear. I want to plea to all of you who are exercising your freedom in this area to think carefully. You are a part of a church to where more than you know that there are brothers and sisters who are seated close to you and who are a part of your growth groups 
who have struggled deeply with alcohol and drugs. Deeply. Because of embarrassment and the fear of your judgment on them, many of them do not express their struggle out loud. And because of that, I'm going to be very direct. In the last three years, I've made this plea like this more than once in this church. But because of what has happened, it's going to require more than a plea. It's going to require direct action. So therefore, I'm giving everyone a clear warning on what I'm going to say next. Because, there's two instances, because of one growth group's insistence on bringing this subject up continually, it finally wore down a brother or sister to where they went back to drinking. Because of a growth group's insistence when they got together for fellowships to drink, a brother or sister began to drink again. And both of them nearly destroyed their life. That's their problem. Hear me on this. I'm back in chapter 6. We've read this text over and over again. Hear me on this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor who? Drunkards. Why would you want to risk to push a brother or sister back to that? Why? Let me tell you a story. It's been almost 20 years ago now. I had a small group of young men, emerging leaders in the life of the church, and we were dealing with qualifications of leaders, and we were doing multiple texts, and this came up, and we spent three weeks on it, and I was wore out. I was so exhausted of talking about this matter. And I had an older brother in the room who had been very quiet about it. Finally, after the third night, he spoke up and he said, guys, I've hesitated to say something, but I'm going to tell you. I destroyed my first marriage because I could not keep my face out of a bottle. I lost my kids, my business, and everything I had. I came to faith in Christ and God has changed me. And he said this. He said, quite frankly, you guys don't affect me. You don't. Even if you cracked a beer right here in front of me right now, it wouldn't affect me. But he said, if that man, and he pointed to me, if that man started drinking in my presence, I'm going right back. And he pointed at those three young men and he said, every one of you have me in your life. Every one of you. And you better be careful with what you decide. You say, I'm going to write you an email today and show you every verse in the Bible that says I can drink. And I'm going to write one simple sentence to you. You missed the point. So what's the point? Turn to Philippians 2.
Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's a pretty inclusive word, isn't it? Nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now there's a lot happening here, but there's one major theme. As Christians, Jesus is our Lord. We answer to Him. And here's what our Lord has shown us and told us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How could the Bible have the audacity to say that? Here's why. Because the stronger brother stepped from eternity into time and humbled himself and became a man. Why? For the weaker brothers and sisters. That's every one of us. The stronger brother laid down his life for us. And for those who look to Him and believe and trust Him. He says to you, now that you are known by Me, now that you love Me, follow Me and love your brothers and sisters. Don't you look out for your interests alone. And Paul says, don't you do anything that would lead to their destruction. Anything. Look to Christ, brothers and sisters. Look to Christ and follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the world that we live in, you know better than we know. Some of us can remember times and parts of this world where Christianity was prevalent and influenced most everything, but now things have changed. And instead of Christianity affecting the world, the world is affecting Christianity. And we're scrambling to decide where we can look like it and where we can't. Thank you that your word is so clear, so practical, so direct, that it speaks into every situation. Thank you that your word pierces into the very depths of who we are. And thank you that you have pierced us today, Holy Spirit, through things that were not even said and those for the sake of the gospel. So I pray for men and women who need to lay down their rights and they know what they are for the sake of others. 
May we do it now as you did, Christ. As you willingly gave yourself. May we look to you and find our encouragement and strength. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.